Hello, this is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Our sermon series for the month of October is based on the book of Matthew. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this exciting journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. So the phrase for such a time as this, it sounds sort of like a fairy tale, doesn't it? For such a time as this, sounds like something, you know, I have a five-year-old daughter. She loves to make up fairy tales. She'll tell these stories, make up these beautiful long tales, right? We all love fairy tales. I think I could name all the Disney princesses at this point, Ariel, uh, Moana, uh, Olaf. Is Olaf one? I don't think he is. But you know, you know the, the, whole, the whole fairy tale thing, this, this idea of, of, of humble beginnings, of, of um, for such a time as this, you started somewhere low and, and you got raised up for this perfect pivotal moment where everything hung in the balance and you made the right choice and, and it was like what you call like a watershed moment, you know, like almost like Cinderella, right? She had this humble beginning and for such a time as this, she was raised up and put the shoe on or Snow White lived in the woods with seven small men, that sounds sort of questionable, but, but this idea that you came from nothing and now you're somewhere, and, and today we're going to see that Esther is that same archetype. She is that same story, that she had this, this spirit of the star sort of converging at the right time, almost like a chosen one coming up. So I, of course, think about Luke Skywalker, Star Wars, this notion of for such a time as this, um, Karate Kid. I remember 1984, I'm showing my age. If you saw the movie, they gave you a little uh, Daniel Russo headband, and I'd stand in the driveway and practice my crane, my crane kick. Or Gladiator, you know, the year 2000, that movie came out, Russell Crowe, right? Uh, the guys, we'd go to see Russell Crowe fight, and the ladies, they would go to see Russell Crowe fight, right? Yeah, but it's the idea of for such a time as this. They would rise to the moment. They would rise to the occasion. They would seize the opportunity, and they wouldn't let go. And for such a time as this, Esther was a beautiful Jewish girl that was born, and she would become the queen of Persia, what we consider modern-day Iran. If you read the books of Ezra, Daniel, Nehemiah, they all relate to this particular point in time of history of the occupation of the Babylonians or the Jews or then taking the Jews as slaves. And so it's all within the context of that time. And Esther is only one of the two books in the Bible that has named after a woman. Ruth is the other. And it's the only book in the Bible where God is never mentioned by name. How interesting. God never is said in the book of Bi- in that book and yet his fingerprints are all over it. His his influence as we'll see is all over the book of Esther. But why wouldn't God be mentioned? That's an interesting thing in the book of Esther. I think it's one reason could be is that it's helpful to know that sometimes in life it feels like God isn't there. But in fact, he was there the whole time, guiding and orchestrating the situation. And that is clearly what happens in today, as we'll see in Esther. Esther was a descendant of those Jews who were enslaved by Nebuchadnezzar. Esther was an orphan. She did not know her parents. So she was raised by her cousin, Mordecai. And Esther was so physically beautiful that she was chosen in a nationwide sort of America's Got Talent, Persia's Got Talent, 
experience for her beauty. Out of all the women, she was chosen to replace Queen Vashti. And so, but no one in King Xerxes' court, they didn't know she was a Jew. They just knew she was beautiful. And Mordecai, her cousin, had told Esther, don't tell people that you're a Jew. Don't make it known to them. In Esther 2.10, you see this word that says, there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. And Esther knows this is her time to be silent. Later, she would wait for the right moment to speak up. Another character in this story of Esther is a man named Haman. Haman had the ear of King Xerxes. He was a uh, confidant. He was his prime advisor, if you will. He was a wormy, slimy um, person that wanted to manipulate and keeps conniving. He had a high ego, but he had the ear of King Xerxes. Mordecai and the other Jews refused to bow to King Xerxes, and this infuriated Haman to the point that Haman wanted them killed. So instead, Haman gets into the ear of King Xerxes and tries to convince the king that it's because of the Jews that all these bad things happen. And so we need to take them all out, even to the point of putting a bounty on the head of every Jewish man that if you killed one, you would get paid, thereby giving financial incentive to do this horrible thing. But what does Esther's life teach us about for such a time as this? It's three words, opportunity, action, and faith. Opportunity, action, and faith. In Esther 4, 1 through 8, Mordecai sends a servant to Esther. She's in the palace. Mordecai's not. Sends a servant to Esther and tells her what Haman is going to do. And then Esther has this opportunity for such a time as this. She had influence. She was positioned in a place to seize the opportunity and rise to the occasion. And you and I, in our lives, we will have moments in which God injects us into moments that are divine in nature, supernatural in potential, and eternal in significance. These turning points moments, and Esther is in that moment. When Mordecai says, this is what Haman wants to do, what will you do about it? Mordecai essentially says to Esther, I've got a plan. It's a suicide mission, and you might die, but it's a plan. Look at Esther, starting in verse 11. The servant Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to the servant and gave him a message from Mordecai, saying, all the king's servants and the people of the king's province... Know that if a man or a woman goes to the king inside his inner court without being called, there is all but one law. All alike will be put to death. She's saying, if I go in there without being asked, he'll kill me. I can't do anything. I'll die. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter, may that person live. I have not been called to see the king in 30 days. A month had gone by. They had not spoken, they had not had relations, they had no dialogue, and you want me to go in there without being invited? It is death. I don't think I can do that, Mordecai. So Esther had the problem. She could see the opportunity, but it scared her. So two times, she brings a meal into King Xerxes and tries to find the right moment to bring it up, and she just backs away and doesn't say what is on her heart. She has the opportunity, but she's resisting being impulsive. 
She's resisting being impulsive, and that's so important. More than ever, I've become aware of how important self-control is, and that Paul, in the book of Galatians, when he lists the fruit of the Spirit, one of those is self-control. The Holy Spirit pulls the reins on our mouths, on our lives, and says, whoa, 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 let's think before we speak here. Let's not be impulsive, because this is uh, Oswald Chambers in his book, My Utmost First Highest, had this to say about being impulsive. He said, there was nothing of the nature of impulsive or thoughtless action about Jesus our Lord, but only a calm strength that never got into a panic. Most of us develop our Christianity along the lines of our own nature, not along the lines of God's nature. Impulsiveness is a trait of the natural life, and our Lord always ignored it because it hinders the development of the life of the disciple. Watch how the Spirit of God gives a sense of restraint to impulsiveness, suddenly bringing us a feeling of self-conscious foolishness. Impulsiveness is all right in a child, but it is disastrous in a man or a woman. An impulsive adult is always a spoiled person. That's a great quote. Impulsiveness needs to be trained into intuition through discipline. So instead of being impulsive, what does Esther do? She keeps her mouth shut. And she waits for the right time. She trains her impulsive desire through discipline and self-control. She sees the opportunity, but she does not act on it yet. So there's opportunity, then there's action. She has the opportunity, but now she has to weigh the costs of, the, of that opportunity. If I do it, I think I'm going to die. I don't really want to do that. And so new opportunities always bring us new variables and complications and different things we have to work out and weigh out. But it doesn't paralyze Esther here. She eventually acts. One of my favorite book, uh, verses in Ecclesiastes is, if you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get anything done. And I always love that. If you wait for perfect conditions, you'll never get it done. Sometimes you do just have to go and get it done. Esther is given influence, an opportunity to save her people, and she has a choice. Will she play it safe and save her life? Or will she put her neck out for her people, but potentially lose her life? We are given those moments as well in this tension of our lives. What will you do? Will you play it safe and do nothing? While ironically, that is still an action in itself. See, playing it safe may be easier, but it's not always better. All people want significance apart from sacrifice. But, this is critical, what if there is no, there is no significance apart from sacrifice? What if without sacrifice, there is no significance in our lives? I love the movie Braveheart. Have you ever seen the movie Braveheart? It won Best Picture a long time ago at this point. And Mel Gibson turns into a terrific performance as William Wallace in Scotland. And he has that classic line where he's in prison the night before. He's going to get uh, tortured and killed by the king of England. And the, the uh, she's not the queen, though. No. She's like a princess from France. I forgot her title. But she comes to William Wallace the night before and says, please just recant. Please just, just repent and you'll live. Because she, she really was in love with him. And, and he gives the classic line, every man dies, but not every man truly lives. 
And so he knew this principle that there really is no significance apart from sacrifice. When I, um, my son uh, is homeschooled, like a lot of kids are now, we were were already on that train before the train picked everybody else up uh, lately, but um, part of his curriculum is learning about Christian missionaries with the stuff that we, we do. And one, one he learned about was a woman named Gladys Allward, who was a, a housemaid in England in the early 20th century. And through her own religious faith, her faith in Jesus Christ, she felt a call to go uh, to China and work with orphans. And so she, she went to a missionary society, and she got interviewed, and they said, no, you can't go. You're not smart enough. You don't have good enough grades. And they shut her down. Everywhere she went in this journey, she had obstacles, every single place. She didn't give up. She saved money on her little job, bought a, a boat ticket to China, got on a train into China. And as they're getting into China, the men driving the train said, we have, we're going to, they couldn't, well, she couldn't speak Mandarin. And they said, we have to turn around. There's a war going on right now in China. And she refused. She gets off the train, walks into China on the train tracks in the middle of winter and proceeded to work with all of the, they had this process in the early 20th century in China called foot binding, where it was culturally acceptable for little girls at a young age to have their feet bound up, essentially that you could hardly walk. And it's a horrible practice. And she would go into each home that was doing this, these little villages around China, and take off the bandages of these children's feet, massage their feet to help the bones regrow. And she would tell every family about Jesus around these villages of China. And her life was incredible stories. She eventually went to Taiwan, starts an orphanage, and that is where she would eventually pass away. But she would rescue hundreds, if not thousands, of children's lives. Now, I tell you that story about opportunity and action. Some people would hear that story of Gladys Allward, and some people would think, oh, how tragic. Oh, how sad. She died in Taiwan, unmarked grave. No one knew her story. Now some people do. But what if the truth is that her life is one of the most significant lives that was ever lived? What if her life shows us that a safe life isn't a significant life? What if her life and so many lives like hers are the fact that life is not about the amount of years we live, but what we do with those years before we die for God? I mean, think of the apostles. Think of John Wesley, Francis Asbury, even Jesus Christ. Their lives were poured out as a drink offering, as they chose significance for God over safety. They leveraged their opportunities for God instead of for themselves. Every man dies. Not everybody truly lives. So many lives in history were swept up in this great drama of God's work in the world. They found out what God was doing, and they said, I want to do that. I have that vision you have, and I want to do that with my life. They're willing to get their lives in with his agenda. It's not, hey, God, get with my program. It's, God, how can I get with your program? And that's what we're seeing here with Esther as well. How can I live into your will for this situation and not not deviate from it, even though it's scary and it's hard. For such a time as this, I was raised up. Many people will will pray this prayer, God, show me your will. It's a powerful prayer. It's a good prayer. Maybe an even better prayer could be, 
God, how can I live into your will? How can I do what you're already doing? How can I be where you're already being? How can I go to the places where you already are? And how can I live into what you're doing? Because the real question is, how can we join with God what he's doing? Because the kingdom of God has already come. And the kingdom of God is always coming, and it has never stopped coming. A Christian is always a revolutionary in the best sense of the word. We should always be a sense of danger about our lives, but action is the key. If you look throughout history, Christians have led the charge with building hospitals, helping with mental health. Monks in the Middle Ages kept, literally kept culture alive through copying manuscripts and keeping knowledge through the Black Plague. And you could go on and on. We were the main voices in abolishing slavery and prison reform. Even today, the lead voices in abolishing the horrible practice of sex trafficking around our world, but it took people who didn't sit on their hands, didn't do the safe thing, but they did the faithful thing, even if it was scary or it was hard. Some people will be content with the mundane, and you can't change someone's mind, but will we seize the opportunity and then act on it, as we're going to see Esther do here? In the face of risk, Esther chooses to act. Look at Esther, uh, verses 12 through 14. And when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, if I go in there, I'm going to die. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. This is like uh, 5th century B.C. uh, text messaging here, okay? They're, They're kind of back and forth with a guy running around. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent for such a time as this, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Mordecai lays it all out for Esther. If you don't do it, someone else will. God will find someone else to do the hard thing. Not the easy thing, but the hard thing. To do something significant. God challenges us. God wants us to be Not just good, he wants us to be great. Amen? He wants us to be great. The world needs Christians that are great, that are legit and authentic, and people look at us and they know that Jesus is alive in our hearts because every one of us makes a difference with our opportunities we're given and the action that we choose to show. And we're captivated by these stories, as I said, fairy tales, these sort of epic tales. 1983, Return of the Jedi was released. I was four years old, so I, I have vague memories of seeing this, but I was captured by these stories, this galactic struggle, this huge battle, and we hear about these, these epic tales, and there's something within us that goes, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of a grand story that's bigger than myself. Even if you're watching now and you're not a religious person at all, that is a key aspect of every human being that has ever lived. We want something bigger than us. We want to belong to a story in which we can get lost in and and find a sense of purpose and the real flag to follow. And then as I thought about Star Wars and all this, well, there is a real galactic struggle going on all around us all the time in the unseen spiritual world. And we can devote ourselves to something bigger. There is a reality bigger than what we know. One great book about this idea of opportunity and seizing it, even if it's messy and hard, 
is a book called Messy Spirituality by a guy named Mike Iaconelli. Highly recommend you read Mike Iaconelli, God rest his soul. And he writes in his book, I'm unfinished, I'm unfixed. And the reality is that where God meets me is in the mess of my life, amen? None of us are perfect. He meets me in the unfixedness. He meets me in the brokenness. I thought he did the opposite. I thought he would get rid of all my junk. But if you really read the Bible, if you look at all these people, all these stories, even Esther, he was constantly showing up in people's lives at the worst possible moment in their life. Look at Mary and Joseph, the Christmas story. They got no money. They got nowhere to stay. They got nothing to eat. It's freezing. So they sleep in a cave. But God shows up, sends an angel and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is what you need to do. Look at Moses. Moses kills a guy. And he runs into hiding. And God sends him a burning bush to direct his path and meets with him and helps him seize the opportunity and rise to the mission. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, God hid Joseph away in a dungeon in Egypt. But when he was ready, God placed him in a position of prime minister of that country. Very much an echoing of Esther's story in some ways. These are all pivot moments, transition moments, handoff moments, where God says to these people and to us, you were born for such a time as this. What will you do? Mordecai essentially says to Esther, there will be makers of history, and the question is, will it be you? Because if it's not, someone else will come along. That's the question, and that's the challenge. Opportunity, action, and then faith. If you continue reading Esther 4, Esther rises to the moment and acts like a real queen here, and she says to her servants, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, the capital city of this area, and hold a fast on my behalf, and don't eat or drink for three days. I try to fast for a day, and it's very hard. Don't eat or drink for three days, and I and my maids will fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. What an act of faith. But she commands prayer and fasting, but she doesn't lead from a place of insecurity. She doesn't lead from a place of fear. She doesn't lead from a place of anxiety. She doesn't enlist an army for an insurrection. She doesn't do some political maneuvering. She waits on God and says, the Lord, in a sense, she says, the Lord will fight my battle. The Lord will go ahead of us and we'll wait on him. And whatever it will be, it will be. And it will be in his hands. She knew in that moment when we fast and we feel weak physically, in reality, you are strong because the spirit of God is working within you and you're showing where your reliance lies. And you're waiting on God and letting him lead and not you leading through impulsiveness. So what happened? What happened after the fasting and the prayer? Here's how it plays out. The king is infuriated, and he hears uh, Esther's, Esther comes to the king and says, Haman wants to kill all of my people. The king is infuriated. He has Haman hanged, and then puts the cousin Mordecai in Haman's place on the king's court. And all the people of that land, all the Jews were saved. And through Esther's lineage, 
would come someone named Jesus. Fascinating. Esther could have enjoyed the luxury of being a king or queen, having untold riches and anything she wanted for the rest of her life. She could have retired in style. But Mordecai got in her ear and said, maybe you've been given this money. Maybe you've been given this talent. Maybe you have been raised up for such a time as this. You see, you and I are no different. Whether it's sometime in the past or today or the future, someone, some Mordecai, grabbed your ear and said to you, maybe you have been given this time, this money or these talents or whatever it is you've got. Maybe you've given that in this vision for such a time as this. So she has the opportunity and she acts and she uses faith and she becomes a maker of history. And so can you. And so can I. Because if we really believe this stuff, Jesus said you can look at a mountain and command it and it will leave. Not literally. He's saying anything is possible for those who believe. If you have a little bit of faith, a mustard seed. You ever seen a mustard seed? It's not much bigger than a grain of sand. They're very small. Just a little bit of faith. You can do a great, great work. Six months ago, we had no idea, or more like seven months ago, we had no idea what was coming. Amen? Amen? We had no clue what was coming in our world. And we were worshiping in that fellowship hall. And right at the end, right before the pandemic, we were full in that room. We were getting about to add a second service, contemporary service. And we had no idea what was to come. And then everything shuts down. And then so quickly, I had no idea it was coming. God, the, the, the Lord did this. He started this process of getting all this equipment installed and renovating that room that none of us could foresee. And thanks be to God, we have almost reached our goal with raising the money for that project. I mean, that is incredible. That in the moments of trial, we have stepped forward in faith and we have acted and God has been leading and changing and moving ahead of us. But if you hear this challenge today, and if you walk out and you have a nice lunch, but this doesn't really affect you internally, not here to shame anybody, but I, 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 I do pray for you that you would rise to the moment. I saw an anonymous poem earlier this week, and it said, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. You know, I don't want to live a life of regrets. I don't want to live a life of thinking, oh, well, it could have been, right? You really want to seize that moment and go for it. Because there comes a time where we have to choose significance over safety. We have to seize opportunity when it's given to us. You see, churches every year, we do stewardship campaigns, and they're excellent things. And this church is the most incredible I've been a part of in that what is pledged is what we spend, Every other church I've worked in, what is pledged is about 40%, and then we just kind of hope we get the rest of it by the end of the year. This church backs up what you say, and that is a beautiful thing. But stewardship campaigns, they're not about the money. I mean, it's important, but it's not about the money. What it is, is a yearly call to assess the orientation of your heart, of where is your heart this year? To which is it being directed? Jesus would say, where is the treasure of your heart being stored? And what is most valuable 
to you. And it's a time to assess that. And that's between you and God. And lastly, I want to get restarted with this indoor thing on the right foot, uh, even more so. So we're going to have weekly times of prayer. And if you want to be a part of those times of prayer, please contact me and we'll do it over Zoom to pray together. And I also want to hear from Wesley Memorial members who who want to share your testimony. There is such power when we share our stories, isn't there? You know, did you know the origin of the term love feast? We do it at Christmas time, love feast, right? Love feasts initially were not time to eat sort of you know, a pseudo-communion with sort of a stale loaf of bread and a cup of cider. I mean, it's great, but it's not, it's not what it originally was. A love feast was Christians gathered like this, and people would stand up, and they would share, and they would feast on the love of God, and they would just share their testimony and say, this is what God has done in my life. I just wanted people to know. And they would feast on it. Isn't that beautiful? They'd feast on that. So I, if, you're, if you're feeling called to do that, if you're watching or listening, let me know, because we want to record those on video or do it live in person and let people hear that you have been called for such a time as this. We all have a story to share, just like Esther. Opportunity and faith and action. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank you for this beautiful story of Esther. We thank you for the incredible uh, woman of faith that she was and that we can learn from her and, and grow in her example God, I pray that you would give us that courage, that your perfect love, as 1 John says, your perfect love casts out fear. Let us not live lives that say, oh, it might have been, but let us live lives of significance over safety. Live lives, Lord, that are devoted to you above all else. As you say, Lord Jesus, the greatest commandments are to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, all that we have. And then so doing, love our neighbor as ourselves. So God, we give you this time as we lift our voices in worship and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.